Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities podcast. Today, John Ernst, the Distinguished Professor of History, Philosophy, Politics, Global and Legal Studies at Moorhead State University, and also, we're very glad to say, a board member of the Kentucky Humanities, and it's he's serving as our chair of the Kentucky Humanities 50th anniversary celebration coming up next year in 2022. At Moorhead, Dr. Ernst teaches a, a variety of studies, including American history, Vietnam and Watergate, uh, with a special interest in uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, Dr. Ernst, it's a uh, quite an honor to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. It's, it's an honor to be here with you. I always enjoy uh, our conversations uh, at meetings, and we always talk history, whether it's you and me or some of our other board members who are lawyers and judges who also have an interest in history, so I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Well, sometimes uh, when we're uh, during the pandemic, when we were waiting for everybody to uh, get on the Zoom calls, uh, if, if we had a committee meeting for Kentucky Humanities or a board meeting, uh, it seemed like that uh, several of us usually ended up uh, talking about what we were reading or something in the news or something in politics or history. And uh, so I thought, well, why not record one of these? And so we'll just pretend like we're in a committee meeting and um, <laughs> all right. And have a conversation. No, no, John, you've been teaching uh, for some time uh, at, at Moorhead. Uh, you uh, received your PhD at, at UK and, and studied, and maybe uh, I'm going to ask you uh, your, your interest in, in Vietnam. You were under the, the tutelage of the, uh, the great professor and, and friend of, uh, of Kentucky Humanities, George Herring. Um, did, is that where, was he the one who enticed you uh, at the time you were working on your PhD to, to become more interested in Vietnam? Well, you know, that's a good question, Bill. You know, and, and I often get asked this just from my students. Uh, I have always been fascinated about Vietnam because it was, it was literally the, the generation just ahead of me. And um, my first memories are at my grandparents' house in downtown Louisville. And I remember they had a black and white TV. I remember seeing the outline of the Vietnam, of the, the map of Vietnam, Walter Cronkite talking. And that is really, you know, my only strong memories of that. Uh, really surprised me, but as, you know, not really because I was young, but then what I really noticed is that after the war, nobody talked about it. And so it really fascinated me. And then my first real, uh, I, you know, it's kind of touch with it uh, was when the film Apocalypse Now came out in 79. And I watched that movie and I thought, which is a fabulous movie. It's one of my favorites to this day. But, you know, it's, it's uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness adapted to Vietnam. And I thought that can't be it. And it wasn't about a year or two after that, I, I arrived at Eastern Kentucky University. 
and uh, studied history with a, one of our former board members, Nancy Forderhays, who was fabulous. Oh my God, she really cultivated my love for history. And she had me read George Herring's book, America's Longest War. And it was the first time I thought, okay, well-written history. And as you noted, George is top-notch. Uh, the state, UK, he is a treasure. And uh, I read the book. It made sense to me. And I thought, okay, this has been explained to me in academic, but well-written academic terms. And it wasn't long after that. I know this sounds corny, but it was not long after that I told Nancy Forderhays, I said, you know, I really want to get a history degree. And then afterwards, I think I'd like to get a graduate degree. So it was really was. You're right. George's book opened that for me. And uh, I, I, you know, I will, I will always be honest with you, Bill. I was, uh, I was a good student. <laughs> uh, once I realized I needed to balance a social life with academics. Uh, but uh, I made up for uh, my freshman year, the rest of my years. And the reason I say that, Nancy, on my behalf, said, look, John is a diamond in the rough. She knew George. And she said, if you take him on, you won't be sorry. So uh, I went to UK. I had no idea he was at UK before that. But I went on to UK and uh, worked with him for, you know, it takes a while to get a PhD. I guess I was with him for eight to 10 years. Um, I'm gonna probably tell you more than you wanna hear because it's, it's a hazard of being a historian. Um, one of our other treasures uh, worked with John Kleber at that time too. John was the editor of the Kentucky Encyclopedia on loan from Moorhead State. Um, and the reason I bring that up is George uh, was getting to be uh, in demand. Uh, in fact, in 86, I think he came out with his second uh, edition of America's Longest War. And oh my gosh, we, he had students from all over the United States, had one from France working with him. And I always joke and say uh, he had a, it was a large pack and I was a small dog, but he gave me a chance. And uh, he sent me over to work with Kleber uh, and for, 20 hours a week, I worked uh, for John Cleaver on the encyclopedia and learned to really research and write with John, who is still one of my best friends. And I would argue, once again, a state treasure, too. But uh, George put me through what I always call an academic boot camp. Uh, I earned his respect. It was not easily earned. Uh, but I, I have no regrets. Uh, thoroughly loved it. Um, and I remember... Uh, once I got through my qualifying exams, he asked me, he says, all right, what are you wanting to do your dissertation on? And I looked at him, I said, I still don't quite understand why the United States thought it could succeed after it had assisted France with so much money and advisors. And George, cause he is so top notch, looked at me, says nation building, and do the Michigan State stuff, nobody's done it. So after I finished my exams, I went and spent a summer and uh, several trips, one long summer up in East Lansing in their archives. Um, and uh, once again, George put you through the paces, but uh, the nation building fascinated me. Uh, and uh, when you talk about uh, George's uh 
putting you through the uh, the academic uh, rigors of of what it required. What uh, explain that to us uh, today? What does that mean? Oh my gosh! Well, if we just talk about the dissertation, well, he was a brilliant teacher. Oh my gosh! I mean, uh, but you know, I always joke with us. My son's throw this back at me. Uh, I worked I worked my backside off for him. The, the reading load in graduate school for history is unbelievable. And uh, all I could ever get on a test with George Herring was an 87. Every time, 87, 87. I tell that story. My, my kids throw it, like I said, throw it back at me. Uh, he just had high standards. Uh, and my writing was not up, up to snuff until John Cleaver got a hold of me. So, I mean, I really was a, uh, you know, I have benefited. I don't mean to make this too personal, but there, I had the best mentors going. I, it, you know, and so I try to pay it forward now. Nancy Forder Hayes was amazing. John Cleaver was amazing, and, and really helped me with George. Uh, George just put you through it. He expected hard work, uh, and he expected a certain quality and could get it because he's that good. The dissertation, I, this will frame it for you. The dissertation, when I wrote, uh, I researched, I, like I said, I went up to East Lansing, and then I had to do a number of oral history interviews with these Michigan State professors who uh, had spent, you know, at least a year or months in Vietnam with the Zim administration. They were, some were still in the Michigan area. One was literally uh, in California. Um, and so I had to go out there and do these oral history interviews. So it took forever in that, that sense. Uh, those were great experiences. Um, John, why was uh, Michigan state, uh, uh, held up as the, 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 the place to go at that time for Vietnam history? Well, it's really a very personal connection. Um, yeah, Michigan state, uh, John Hanna was the president. And he literally uh, was tight with the government and he helped build the campus off government money. And they, they were involved in a number of uh, nation building projects all around the world. Uh, but a political science professor named Wesley Fischel, a young one, had arrived at Michigan State. And uh, Fischel had met No Den Ziem, who became South Vietnam's president and sponsored by the U.S. Fischl had been on a uh, trip. Uh, well, trip's not the right word. He had been part of the UCLA's overseas teaching program and he met ZM in Japan. And um, they really hit it off and liked each other. I, I you know, uh, I kind of write about that, you know, uh, both uh, anti-communist, uh, educated men, um, got to know each other, like each other. Uh, Fisher became a bit of an operator when he went back or when he got a permanent job at Michigan State, he brought ZM over and uh, for a while, he was like a Southeast Asian consultant for the university there. And when ZM uh, went over and became uh, president, uh, the United, ZM trusted trust a lot of people. Uh, and you can kind of understand that to some degree because all of a sudden you're foisted into what is the front line, you know, of fighting uh, communism in the world from the U.S. perspective. Um, 
his family, he's, you know, Zim surrounded himself with his family for, for much of, much of it, but he trusted Fischl. And, uh, State Department called John Hanna, John Foster Dulles calls Hanna and says, uh, we really need Wesley Fischl. And so Fischl went over to, went over to, uh, Saigon and it kind of rolled from there for a, for a while, uh, he really uh, was one of the few uh, Americans trusted by ZM. And so on one hand, the American government kind of bristled that they had to go through Fischl. On another hand, they were thrilled that they had that kind of access. Fischl had breakfast with ZM <laughs> mornings, lived in the palace for a while. But the whole uh, nation building project, uh, Michigan State's involvement kind of came from there. But they wielded a lot of power for a while. So, uh, John, after this much time has passed and there have been many, many books uh, written about uh, uh, our longest war, are there still things to learn and to realize, to know about our experience in Vietnam? Oh, yeah. God, you know, I love history. You know, I love teaching it. I love research and writing it. Uh, I think I mentioned to you the other day, I've, I've been reading uh, Julia Swegg's book on uh, Lady Bird Johnson, and it's based on Lady Bird's uh, diaries, which I think she released parts of it, you know, it's been decades ago, 1970, I think. Uh, so I'm reading that right now. I was sitting on my back uh, deck uh, the other uh, morning, this past and and something that I didn't that you know it's been out there but I hadn't really investigated much she said she sits down and writes a memo I knew that she was partners with Lyndon Johnson and, and I think I mentioned to you before Lyndon Johnson is one of my favorite presidents which a lot of my students are surprised about because you know many of them think you know because of Vietnam failed but failed presidency but I don't see it that way at all I see it as one that was near great but um, anyway, I'm, re I'm reading it, and uh, Johnson didn't know whether he was going to run in his own right in 64. He had doubts about it. You know, he had, he had bouts with depression at times, and, he, and I knew he was moody. Oh, gosh. You know, I, Johnson was a fascinating character in the sense that, uh, you know, I I think I've mentioned this to you. I don't know how you get past his, his goals. They are fabulous. I mean, the great society, he wants to end poverty and racism. And I'm thinking that it just doesn't get any better than that. That just speaks to who I am as a person. I love those goals. But he didn't even know if he was going to run. Mm -hmm. Thought I'll finish Kennedy's. Uh, I'll try to carry forth the civil rights piece of that for Kennedy. And then I'll step aside. And he asked Lady Bird to write a memo with the, literally a memo with the pros and cons. Do we run in 64? And he was tired at that point. Should he do it? You know, maybe we just go back to the ranch. And one of the reasons I like this book is that you get, that it's given Lady Bird her, her due. I mean, she was, she was a smart, articulate, uh, could be a charismatic campaigner down to earth. They were really a, a team. Uh, 
she she laid out the pros and cons and, and what stuck with me bill this weekend i sat and i really thought about it out there drinking some coffee was she nudged him to do it she just said you know if you don't do it you're gonna regret it you know and she even said she said you know if you don't do it you're gonna probably live a little longer a few more years but if you don't do it, you're just going to regret it. And she goes, and we'll have to live with that. We let down the nation that they will look at us this way. And I thought, Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. that that's, and he, and you know, he did not live long after he left the white house. It's just, a, it was three, four years. Uh, and I always argue it's because the toll Vietnam took on him, though his health wasn't great. Uh, you know, he, he smoked and he shouldn't smoke. He tried to quit. His heart wasn't the best. He liked to drink, though he quit drinking because of his concern uh, over Vietnam. George wrote, uh, I know I'm all over the board with you. I can't help it. It comes out. No, it's fine. That's I'm wonderful. still fascinated. You ask if there's anything more to learn. There's always more uh, on Vietnam. And I know I told you I'm fascinated because we didn't talk about it. And I know why we didn't now as I went further in my career. But, but, those years, I don't know that we've had as much upheaval to rival it until recent times. And I, and I, you know, the unrest, uh, I always tell my students, 1968 was to me the most tragic year in the 20th century for America. I mean, uh, King's assassinated, uh, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. You had Ted, I mean, and Johnson chose not, not to run. And I'm gonna bring it around to you. She literally in that memo laid it out. All right, let's do our best for, you know, what, you know, finish off Kennedy, we'll do one term and then you can be done. And, but he already was thinking about being done before he ran, didn't know if he wanted to run. So she literally, I mean, I think Tet obviously and how tragic 68 was and how he just couldn't figure a way out of Vietnam also nudged him to step down. But in that memo, she has him stepping down when he chose to do it. So that that part was new to me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, hmm. how prescient. You know? Well, you're enjoying um, her book. Um, yeah. And like so many, um, I have um, really enjoyed uh, listening to the audio uh, tapes that uh, are available now. Um, I say Good. audio tapes uh, as if uh, that's what they were back in in the 60s. Uh, now they're digitized and um, <laughs> yeah. available to anyone uh, at any time. But to hear, it, there, there's just something about, it's almost, uh, it's very much akin to the the Frost-Nixon uh, digitized versions that you can hear on Audible and, and audio-wise now. To hear Johnson, to hear Johnson, and I hope your students have had that opportunity, um, to hear him uh, uh produce uh, ideas and legislate from um, uh, the bathroom, um, talking to somebody (laughs) through the open door uh, is uh, not only is it poignant and and a moment, but it's hilarious, but, but uh, he was, he was dead serious about those things and, and just his mannerisms and the way he talked. You know, and I, he did the, he did those types. That was his strategy. It was who he was but it was also his strategy. I think he was smart to keep uh, Kennedy's think tank with him, but you know, it was a lot of Ivy leaguers, uh, a lot of smart, smart people. And, you know, 
and I love to tell the students this too. I'm like, he went to West Texas Teachers College. Mm. I said, you know what? Similar to Moorhead State, start off as a normal school. <clears throat> this, so, you know, he loved to let them know that he was still running things. Yeah. But, but he, brilliant politician. I just, uh, one of our most capable Senate majority leaders. Just How many times uh, did he did he visit Kentucky? Was it was it only the one time? I, you know, that's a good question. I don't know that. I do yeah. show a picture when he came to Inez. Yeah. Um, I think he was, you know, he was dead serious about trying to solve the big issues for the country, if not the world in that sense. I mean, once again, I just don't know that it gets any bigger than trying to deal with poverty and racism. Yeah equity justice i mean i and you know and he really took a shellacking for you know they called him a uh you know uh oh gosh uh, you know that he turned his back on his roots uh that you know the texans were hard on him at times but probably very few i think it had to be a southerner of his stature mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating to read and to hear again uh, the words um, uh, about the way he spoke about, uh, for example, Dr. King. Uh, um, he, uh, in in conversation with Dr. King, I mean, they they got along fine, but when Dr. King left the office uh, and, and somebody else came in that he had to garner favor with, uh, King King wasn't the the, the person that uh, he was addressing in person. Uh, in other words. Uh, that that's he was a politician. He had to 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 play uh, all sides of uh, both sides of the aisle, all sides of an issue. So, uh, but he got the job done. Yeah, I, he's brilliant politician. Good instincts with people, you know. And I, you know, I always say that this would have been a great era for Lyndon Johnson because he was one of those early multitaskers. You know, like you're saying, thank goodness he did so much business on the phone because you've got the you got the tapes. Yeah. You know, he had the TVs in front of him. He had the stock market ticker going and he could somehow manage all that. So he would have been just fabulous now. Yeah. <laughs> he had yeah. that kind of skill. Well, we're talking with uh, Dr. John Ernst of Moorhead State University. Uh, Dr. Ernst teaches a variety of um history uh, subjects uh, at Moorhead, the uh, uh, American history, of course. Uh, he's an expert in the area of Vietnam and Watergate. We're going to touch on that in just a minute. We've been talking about uh, President Johnson and Lady Bird Johnson. Uh, Dr. Ernst is also uh, a member of our uh, board of directors at Kentucky Humanities and has served uh, for the last uh, several years, I think th- since 2016, and uh, we will miss him when he rotates off, uh, but he will still be around uh, to help us and give us some guidance. Um, we're going to take a short uh, break uh, right here, John, for a word from our good friends at Spalding University, and then be back with more conversation with Dr. John Ernst. The Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing offers students intellectual rigor, emotional support, affordability, flexibility, and community at the world's first certified compassionate university. From certificate to terminal degree, the programs at Spalding School of Writing foster lifelong writing habits and help you forge a lasting writing community. 
Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. All right. We always appreciate uh, hearing from Spalding and their great uh, writing program uh, Ed, down the down the road uh, in uh, Louisville. Uh, we appreciate uh, their interest in our podcast so much. Uh, John Ernst uh, is a uh, professor of history at Moorhead State University. Uh, he has been uh, in, in some capacities uh, uh, interim dean of uh, of the College of Humanities and, and uh, is it humanities and social sciences, John? Arts humanities. In the- arts humanities. All right, we'll have to put arts sciences, in there too. Yeah. So we uh, we do appreciate uh, his being with us and his um, his interest, uh, his hobby, if you will. Uh, at some time, it probably wasn't your hobby of Vietnam, uh, but but your your love of uh, of some of the faculty uh, that you had working on your PhD. Um, I mentioned to you before, John, that there seems to be a a whole new spate of books about Watergate all of a sudden. Um, Of course, we are getting close to to an anniversary and uh, people will be, maybe that's the reason, uh, historians put together books. And I I think if you just Google uh, what's out there, gosh, there are a bunch of them coming out this summer. Uh, why is that? And, and why have you chosen uh, to develop a course at Moorhead uh, that combines uh, Watergate and Vietnam? Well, you know, and at Watergate, you know, as we were chatting a few minutes ago, actually, you know, I don't have very strong memories of uh, Vietnam, just a few because I was so young. Watergate, I was, you know, but I was coming of age at that time where I was aware. Um, and uh, I, once again, I believe that Watergate on the heels of Vietnam created this credibility gap for the country that that is still with us now. Uh, and, 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 you know, a healthy skeptic- skepticism, I can't speak, is, uh, I think, a good thing. But, uh, you know, journalism, as you know, went off uh, as it became one of the most popular majors you know, in the wake of Watergate because of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein at the Washington Post, uh, how important the press is uh, to the democratic process. And I'm a firm believer in that. But uh, once again, I think it's it's the credibility gap. And I remember, you know, I was young. I, you know, I was born in 62. So I remember that television was just dominated by those hearings. You know, and I'm like, gosh, more looking at a bunch of old people on TV. I, I <laughs> funny cartoons, and this is what we had. But I was, but I was aware to some degree what was going on. And uh, uh, one of uh, my one of my childhood friends, uh, her name was Beth Belevin. She had a T-shirt that said Watergate Spy Team. I'll never forget that. Had a, had the spyglass going around. Uh, but, you know, so I was aware of it from that point. But then once I started studying it, you're just like, oh, my gosh, you know, was the democracy going to work? And, and I think and we've had a little bit of a taste of that recently. Was the process was what the founding fathers set up going to work? I think there was a strong there was a strong feeling uh, that uh, Nixon was guilty. They didn't quite have it yet. 
until Alexander Butterfield let it slip in one of those congressional hearings that there was a taping system in the White House. <clears throat> and then after that, it was done. You know, the smoking gun. I actually went to Yerba Linda, California uh, and sat down in the uh, Nixon library. And to, to Nixon's credit, can't believe I'm saying that. There it is. To Nixon's credit, you can put on headphones and listen to the smoking gun where he's basically telling Bob Haldeman to make this go away. Uh, but, you know, I, I think we're fascinated with it because, once again, I think the, the democracy was in some jeopardy at that time. What, what was going to happen? Was it going was it going to work? Would he actually step away? Uh, and it, those were tense, tense times. Uh, and I remember when Gerald Ford, uh, this one I remember clearly when he took over and he said the long national nightmare is over. And uh, I've, I've, I've often, uh, as an historian, uh, give Gerald Ford high marks for that. Uh, for years, some people said he cut a deal when Nixon brought him in as his vice president. And, and I, I've never believed that. I don't think any, uh, I've never seen any proof of it. And of course, Nixon brought Ford in uh, because his own vice president, Sparrow Agnew, was in trouble, not because of Watergate. He was in trouble for tax evasion and taking kicks, kickbacks from contractors when he was governor of Maryland. But he needed a Boy Scout and got an Eagle Scout, I always joke with Joe. But Ford pardoned Nixon. I think it was the right thing to do for the country because I don't think the country could take much more at that time. But he took a hit. Uh, his, his, his approval rating plummeted from like 73, 74 to, the, to 40 something. I, but I always thought that was the right thing to do. And, and Ford did what was right for the country. Um, well, John, let me just uh, probe that just for a minute, because uh, there would probably be a lot of people who would uh, disagree with you that uh, that someone who had committed um, or orchestrated the crime um, and, and what was behind uh, the uh, Watergate uh, entry and everything else that was going on in the White House wouldn't give um, Nixon an opportunity to, 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 uh, to really exonerate uh, um, his self, uh, um, um, expunge his record, uh, right. would not have that on it. So, so why, do you, why do you feel so strongly that that was a good thing? Did, did you think that really healed the country at the time? I just think we needed to move on, Bill. I really do. I, you know, after, once again, after Vietnam and then wondering whether the system was gonna work or not, Nixon's our only president to resign. He certainly would have been impeached, but he resigned beforehand. Uh, I just think the country had to move forward somehow. I, I really think Ford was right when we said our long national nightmare was over, uh, that we just had to move forward. Um, and those were tough times. Oh, my gosh. You know, we had the oil embargo from OPEC was going on. Um, People just wanted to move forward and the economy was in bad shape. I just, I, I just believe that we had to move forward and try to concentrate on some positive things. Um, you, you know, kind of along a, a similar line there, what, what I would tell you what really surprised me, and I guess it shouldn't because America is the land of second chances, I guess. Uh, towards the end of Nixon's life, he became almost an elder statesman. <laughs> I, I remember being in uh, Richmond, uh, working on my uh, dissertation, uh, the last parts of it, and I just started teaching at Moorhead State, 
And Nixon was making the rounds on the talk shows and he was being treated as an elder statesman. This was the early 90s. I couldn't believe it. You know, I, you know, it was clear he was guilty. They had the evidence. Um, I, 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 I would uh, um, remind uh, listeners, though, uh, John, and I think you would uh, agree with me that uh, we mentioned it just a, m- a minute ago. Uh, it's um, it's not flashy television uh, or uh, a fancy streaming documentary. Uh, it's just audio. But to hear those conversations that uh, Nixon had with people in his office is is one thing. I mean, it's just incredible to think yeah. that that was being uh, recorded. All those conversations, and then secondly, um, his conversations, which I think really got to the truth of it. Um, of uh, David Frost. And yeah. I, I think people uh, hearing us today, uh, certainly uh, younger people, don't have any idea who David Frost was. Uh, uh, sort of a showbiz guy and uh, developed this uh, this technique of, of getting the interview, wh- where, wherever, whatever it was, uh, always on his show, on his television show. Then he kind of lost um, favor. Ratings were bad. Uh, and... Uh, and then he he got this uh, Nixon uh, series, and and it's 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 really remarkable um, what Nixon finally ended up confessing to to David Frost. Um, it's it's just uh, I mean you almost feel like you're in the room with them. Yeah, that was you know I I saw that movie and thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought they did a good job with the film. Franklin Jell was great playing Nixon, which kind of surprised me. But uh, yeah, it's. You know, Nixon just literally felt like he was above it all and that what he was doing what was right for the country. Yeah. Guy for it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I remember um, the the hearings. Um, and, and of course, it's been repeated so many, many times uh, uh, clips of that, uh, audio of that. But uh, for me, uh, the one statement that uh, will ever, forever uh, be uh, etched in my memory was Howard Baker, when he said, uh, talking about uh, the, the crime itself, of what did he know and when did he know it? I mean, yeah. it was just a, a simple uh, few word phrase, uh, and that was it. It wasn't a long soliloquy. It wasn't a, a speech. Uh, and they could play to the cameras if they wanted to, and and, and they didn't. Boy, they were they were they were business. They were all business. So, you know, in, in, in you know, Sam Irvin was the the co-chair of that too. And you know, Sam Irvin with that beautiful uh, Caroline and uh, draw. Yeah. With, you know, when the, when the, when Nixon's people were trying to stonewall and this and that, and Irvin just said, "Well, you know, I, I'm just a good old country lawyer, but." That- <laughs> sound right to me <laughs> just you know i just yeah. really you know to, to pull that out and put it in those terms uh like you said yeah. really you're right they, they made a good tandem on that and you had you know you had a uh, a committee speaking to today's terms you had a committee that was democratic and republican working together to try mm-hmm. this thing because the because i really think you know the, it was a lot riding on it, and, and it was nice to see them working together on something so important. Uh, I, it's a concern of mine to this day. I, I, you know, it's, 
I love, I think, you know, uh, democracy, I always say, is messy business, but you got to compromise to do it. And I wish we had more of that going on and more civility. Uh, I'm hoping that's going to return to some degree. But what, like you're saying, it was just fascinating times. The, the other thing I'd like to, you know, say, you know what I, I tell my students is it was so unnecessary, the whole thing. Number one, it was criminally wrong, but also the unnecessary and unbelievably stupid and mishandled. You know, I always tell them, I said, you know, you're talking ex-CIA, ex-FBI, breaking into Watergate, and they did such a terrible job of it. <laughs> they, they didn't they even sure take did. the, they didn't even tape the locks correctly, you know, <laughs> instead of vertically. And then they retaped them the same way. And I thought, oh, my gosh. Well, I don't know if you uh, if you include this in your uh, in your course uh, work. Uh, as you know, I'm, I'm um, I do a little teaching. And, and uh, when I when I mention Watergate, unfortunately, um, and we don't have time today. I, ho- I hope we, you, you can uh, we can get back into it sometime. And that is about the teaching of history. Um, and Watergate is a good example of of uh, how that's maybe mentioned, but not uh, really probed. Um, and I have my students as an assignment uh, to, to watch all the, all the president's men. Uh-huh. And uh, it, 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 black and white using um, uh, phones that are in booths. I mean, kids don't know what that is today. Uh, gosh, <laughs> yeah. my kids hardly know what that is today. And and uh, but it, it, it is a uh, boy, it is well done. And there have been m- many other um, films and documentaries that that are that are done well. But uh, gosh, the press was uh, especially The Washington Post uh, was right at the top of their game at that at that moment. And uh, as you remember, uh, they were turned back uh, a couple of times and it was if it wasn't for their tenacity and their, their drive to, to report the story. That, that's a real, that's a real story for young people. Yeah. And, you know, I think that movie holds up well. I still show it to my students and I, I usually watch it once a year and enjoy it, but, but you're right. It shows how important the press is to a healthy democracy. We, we have to have the press. Uh, and uh, Woodward and Bernstein were so young, but you're right. But you, you also have to think about, you know, uh, how courageous, you know, Ben Bradley was, as well as others that, and I think that movie captures so much that, you know, so many didn't believe it because it, it yeah. be this dumb. And let's don't forget uh, Catherine Graham, who they all worked for. Um, right. and, and at that time, an anomaly of, of, of massive proportions, a, a woman leading, a, running a newspaper a family. Uh, I mean, you know, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Well, John, um, uh, we didn't get to everything, but we covered a few <laughs> things and we'll have to have to do this again. Uh, sure do appreciate your time today. Oh yeah, Bill, thanks. I love to talk history. <laughs> Been talking to Dr. John Ernst, uh, who is a still a teacher at Moorhead State University, and uh, taking the the summer off. Uh, what are you? We we are recording this in the uh, in the summer of twenty one. John, what what have you got on uh, on your uh, slate for this summer? Are you doing some research? Or are you doing some writing? Are you, are you taking some time off? 
You know, Bill, this is the first time since 2008 that I have not been an administrator. So I've not had a summer. So uh, I'm actually organizing my home office a little bit. I'm reading some. I, uh, my good friend and colleague who's retired now, Dr. Von Baldwin, we uh, have a Kentucky and the Vietnam War project that we've kind of worked here and there on for a long time and published a, an article out of it that I'm very proud of called The Not-So-Silent uh, Minority, Louisville's Anti-War Movement. And uh, I'm hoping to, to uh, finish that book up with uh, some more collaboration with her, either in, in retirement or, when, or in the next year or so. I'm hoping to put some time in on it. So, and George Herring always says, you got to finish that one. That one's good. And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, that's terrific, John. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to Think Humanities. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.